Will you turn again finally to Esther chapter 9 verse 20 and we shall read through chapter 10 verse 3. This is the end of the book of Esther in our studies together. And I have entitled this section, Words of Peace and Truth. Words of Peace and Truth. So, we will begin in Esther chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered, and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land, which by the way is a complete uh, change of heart from chapter 2 verse 18. Remember when Queen Esther became queen, when Esther became queen, he granted a remission of taxes. Okay, Change of mind, now he imposes taxes, right? And he imposed those taxes on the coastlands of the sea, which really conveys the extent of his kingdom, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people 
and he spoke peace to all his people. One of the things that stands out surely in this text is that these days of Purim were to be observed by all the Jews. This was, it would appear, the command of Queen Esther and uh, Mordecai the Jew. But not only an observance of uh, this Feast of Purim, Purim, but they were obligated to commemorate and to continue to remember for generation after generation the Feast of Purim. And so this passage might truly also be called that of a passage of observation and a passage of obligation. It reminds me as a Christian that I'm always to observe the things of God and I'm always therefore obligated upon my observation of what I observe in the Word to fulfill what God reveals to me. Can't get away from it. And that, I think, is what the thrust of the letters are that are written by Queen Esther and by Mordecai. So I want to talk a little bit tonight about this passage, about the end of Esther, and about these words of peace and truth. Verses, these verses, I think, take us from the tribulations, the turbulence of the previous chapters, of the uncertainty as to the future existence of the Jews in Persia. There was great threat upon them by Haman, uh, the Agagite. He threatened their, their uh, utter destruction, complete annihilation. That was his purpose. That was his intention. It's apparent that there was a great reversal that took place that brought about great deliverance and great joy in the heart of the Jews. When we read the book of Esther, we perceive that these are the works of God and not the works of men. That Mordecai the Jew, though he is at the end proclaimed as being great and held in honor, which I suppose was quite right to, to be so, yet we perceive when we read the book of Esther that the greatness and the glory of all that takes place in the book of Esther belongs to God. That it is God who is interested vitally in the small details of my insignificant life and your insignificant life from my perspective, from your perspective, yet not insignificant to God because no life is insignificant to God. And so these are, this is a book in which God is not mentioned, yet God is everywhere present in His power and in His protection of His people and in His gracious providence. He speaks throughout the book everywhere as we go through it. The previous chapters have brought us to this point with the overthrow of the enemies of the Jews, days of peace and days of feasting have begun which are called the Feast of Purim. And it is this Feast of Purim which is derived, you will notice for instance it's said or called in verses 26, 28 and 31, these days of Purim. So they have entered into a time, a commemoration period of resting, of joy, of feasting and of gladness. And verse 32 outlines the practices laid down by Queen Esther upon all the Jews in the 127 provinces and as we we know upon every Jew ever since then. So much so that the feast or the, the commemoration of Purim is obligated upon every Jew and they remember Purim still today. As you know, the book of Esther revolves around feasts. The beginning of the book in chapter 1 through chapter 2 verse 18 is the feast of Ahasuerus. 
great feast, you remember, lasted 180 days. It was magnificent. The culmination of that feast and those feasts or that eating and drinking was a new queen. Her name was Esther. Vashti was deposed and relegated to obscurity or whatever happened to her, we never know. But Esther is brought to the forefront in our hearts and minds and we're reminded. So Ahasuerus begins a feast and the outcome of that feast ultimately is a new queen in Persia. In the middle of the book, from chapter 2 verse 19 all the way through chapter 7, we read about the feasts of Esther, how she gave a feast and then another feast which ultimately brought about the revealing of Haman as the enemy of the Jews. And then finally, we have here, from chapter 8, verse 1 on, the the purposes or the the result of what brought us or brings us to the Feast of Purim. So these are the feasts of Esther. If you want to understand Esther, you must understand the feasts and all the events that are connected with them. And the feasts are explained within the context by the associated chapters. So there are many other events that weave themselves in the providential dealing of God that surround the feasts, that are the leading up to the feasts and the outworking of the feasts. But everything revolves uh, around the feasts that we read of in the book of Esther. It's, it's as if in the book, when we come to this point of time, that we take that the writer and we ourselves that think this is his design are to cast our minds, our eyes back backwards to the events that have brought everything to this point, this pivotal point, this point of Purim. And it finds for the Jewish people, even today, the Feast of Purim, a continued existence. They continue today to remind themselves and remember through the feast or through the commemoration of Purim all the events that happened in Persia so long ago. The purpose of Purim for the modern-day Jew is to remind them that God delivers His people. That's the purpose. And out of that deliverance by God of His people springs joy and springs hope for the Jewish people. And they pin their hopes largely on the fact that since God delivered His people in the past, God will always deliver His people in the future and in the present. It's a good lesson for us to learn because we believe that ourselves. That since God has delivered us from our past, He delivers us in our present, and He certainly will deliver us in the future. It's as if, as the writer records the results of what happened when the Jews turned against their enemies and withstood them or defended themselves, it's as if he says that now this is the reason why Purim is celebrated. This is the reason why I have recorded this feast for you, or why Esther and Mordecai instituted the Feast of Purim. So, you will notice in verse 30, this is where I get my title, from that it uses the phrase, in words of peace and truth. In words of peace and truth. There's nothing uh, quite like that to be descriptive of the Gospel that we believe. The Gospel is words of peace and truth. And so, it's interesting to me that what was written so long ago, in ancient Persia, in words recorded, in writing, letters sent out, those letters convey the idea of words of peace and words of truth. And yet we ourselves today have in our hand a letter, as it were, from God, a letter that is a book of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has spoken to us, God has written to us, if you like, this book, this letter, in words of peace and words of truth. 
You'll notice in verse 20 that Mordecai made a record. He recorded all these things, we are told, all these events. And that in verse 23, it says that the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. So Mordecai makes a record, he makes letters, he writes, and the Jews accept that. But what I want you to notice is how prevalent and how much there is mention made of writing in this passage. So you look at verse 25, for example. When it came before the king, he gave orders in writing. Verse 26. Therefore they called these days Purim, after Pur, therefore because of all that was written in this letter. Verse 27. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written. Verse 29, Esther uh, and Mordecai gave full written authority, confirming this second letter. Verse 30, letters were sent to all the Jews in 127 provinces in words of peace and truth. And then in verse 32, we read that the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. And then if you look at chapter 10 and verse 2, it tells us that all the acts of Ahasuerus's power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of the Medes and the Persians? Well, that's just a lot of writing, right? Uh, what can you say about a lot of writing? Well, there it is. A lot of communication, a lot of confirmation in written authority. Letters that are sent right across the Persian Empire, which is massive, right? From Ethiopia in North Africa all the way to India. So right across the Fertile Crescent and all of those uh, places that we know today as Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and all of those places taken up within the kingdom of the Persians. you notice in verse 29 speaks about Mordecai, gave them full written authority. Full written authority. All of this communication, all of these letters, all of this writing, is all about this feast called Purim, the confirming that they should celebrate this as an annual celebration or as an annual commemoration, that they should continue to do this. You'll notice in verse 20 and verse 21 that Mordecai's letter obliged them or obligated them to keep the Feast of Purim. So the purpose of all the writing is to confirm the Feast of Purim, but to obligate the Jews to celebrate that feast, to never forget, to always remember. To remember the days of their deliverance, the 14th and the 15th day, year by year, as verse 21 says. I have never forgotten the day of my conversion. Uh, I can tell you when it was, November 15, so it's just not too long ago, two weeks ago. In fact, on November 15, I buried my mother. On that very day of my regeneration, what was for me spiritual rest, I laid her body to spiritual rest until the resurrection. Very poignant, very meaningful to me. I'll never forget that. If you, can, you can never forget your conversion, right? Well, then how can you can, can, uh, forget that you buried your mother on the same day as your conversion? Very powerful. meant a lot to me that. Uh, I never organized it like that, but that's how it was organized. So I thought that was great. You don't forget the day of your deliverance. Now, you might not be able to 
put a finger on the exact day or the exact moment, but you should be able to look on your life and say that there has been some change. That there has been some transformation because you have received these words of peace and words of truth. That you can say there was a time when I was dead, when I was in the dark, but now I'm in the light and I'm alive in Christ. That you should be able to say, behold, all things have passed away, everything has become brand new. That is the joy of conversion. That is the joy of salvation. Whether you are able to identify a particular day at a particular moment is really of little consequence. What is of consequence has there been confirmation that the word of truth and peace that came to you has brought about a change in your life and you can point to the change. And not only that you can point to the change, but that others can confirm the change that there is something new and different about you. This is the power of the gospel, isn't it? This is the transforming power of Christ in His Word. And this is what I think, uh, whenever we write a letter, or whenever you get, perhaps from your boss, a letter that says, well, you know, this is what has to be done, you take that at face value. You look at that and you say, well, that has authority, because it's come from my boss, or whoever it is, or from my company. And therefore, because it has authority, I'm obligated to fulfill whatever it says or whatever it requires. Everybody accepts that. Everybody thinks like that. Because we recognize in the written word there is the communication of authority and of power. And this is how I see the gospel. That the gospel to the Christian, to the believer, are words of peace and truth that are conveyed to us with an incredible power. The power of the living God who has spoken to us finally in the person of Jesus our Savior. That we receive those words, that we hear those words, that we believe those words because they come from God who is absolute and who has all authority. And we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the authority of the living Lord, the living Christ. That's the wonder of the gospel. You read your Bible, you read the truth, you receive the truth, you say, yes, that's what I believe. And the power of it is evident by the transformation by the Spirit of God in our lives. So, the Jews remember their day of deliverance. That's what Mordecai obligates them to. Don't forget these days, the 14th and the 15th day of Adar. It's to be an annual celebration. You're never to forget. You're to always do and to remember the feast of celebration. The Jews, they responded favorably, verse 23. See, they accepted what Mordecai had written. That's a good idea. And they put it into practice. In fact, so, so good were they at putting it into practice that still today they remember the Feast of Purim. They remember the days of Purim. A reminder to them of the fact that God delivered His people and God would continue to deliver them as His people. You notice how verse 27 puts it? Verse 27 says that the Jews firmly bound themselves and their offspring, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. And verse 28 says, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, every province, every city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Now just think of passing something like that down to generation after generation after generation. That's powerful. And here we are thousands of years later, right? 20, 
2400 years later because Xerxes or Ahasuerus reigned from 485 to 464 BC. So 1400 years later, uh, sorry, 2400 years later, still in remembrance by every Jew around the world. All because Mordecai put it into words in writing, obligating every Jew, and they accepted that obligation. We read in the Bible that thus saith the Lord, and we take that to mean God speaks, and when God speaks to the prophet, <laughs> that's it. No debate, no discussion, God has spoken. In one sense, thus saith Mordecai. He has spoken, he has written, he's great. He's held in honor by every Jew across the, the provinces, in every clan, in every city of this great kingdom. When he writes, they heed, they listen to what he writes. Which tells me that if God has written his word, which is here before me tonight, do I read it? And not only do I read it, but do I heed it? Do I hear it? Do I do it? Because that really is the issue that confronts us. So this is an annual time, and it is an authorized time, essentially binding every Jewish generation to remember their great deliverance, which we read about previously in the verses, right? This reversal of what Haman had intended. But in the providence of God, this great reversal of that decree. This is all confirmed by Esther. You notice verse 29. Then Queen Esther the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming, confirming the second letter about Purim. And verse 32, of course, uh, commands the confirmation of the practices of Purim and records it in writing. But let's go back to verse 26, where we read about Purim. Verse 26 says, Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur, which, if you go back to verse 24, says, Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. So, in verse 24, you have the process of casting lots, casting pur by Haman. The word pur is in the singular, the word purim is in the plural. Pur is not originally a Hebrew word. It's not found in Hebrew. This is, in fact, the only use in the Old Testament of the word pur or the word purim. It came into use or it came into existence during the time, the, the Persian time frame. But what has been done is that the Hebrew suffix for a plural, the im, im, has been added to pur, so that the singular, so that you get plural purim. The days of Purim, this feast to be, to be celebrated on the 14th day and then again on the 15th day. It was Haman who cast the pur, right? Why did he cast the pur back in chapter 3 verse 7? Because the casting of the pur by Haman was to determine the day when he would destroy the Jews. So he cast lots. He cast the pur. This is nothing less than an act of pagan divination. So what Haman did... Is not, has nothing to do with God, but has everything to do with demonic activity of Satan himself. It is pagan divination. There is a Hebrew word for the casting of lots. It is the word goral. G-O-R-A-L. The word goral. You'll notice in your English translation, in verse 24, it says that 
that Haman had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast per, and then in parentheses, that is, cast lots. So you'll notice that per is explained as the casting of lots. Now why is it like that? It's like that because the readers of Esther are obviously unfamiliar with the word per, and it is explained to them by the writer, who says to them it means the casting of lots. So now we know that when Haman cast per, it means he cast lots. He used pagan divination to determine what day he might destroy the Jews. The word garal, the Hebrew word garal for casting of lots, is familiar throughout the Old Testament. For instance, famous verse, right? Proverbs 16.33, that the lot is cast, garal, is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Or to put it in colloquial terms, every time you roll the die, the dice, every time it turns up, whatever it turns up is from God. So Las Vegas has a lot of acts of God going on within it, right? Every roll of the dice, whatever they turn up, every decision is ultimately from God. Now we believe that. We believe God controls the wind. We believe God controls the little ant that climbs up a little, a little piece of grass and down the other side and continues on his merry way and is fed by God. We believe that. We confess that. That's the providential care of God for all of his creatures. How much more the providential care for us. Okay, so this is what Haman did, the casting of lots, like all the pagans would do, to divine the will of their gods. You remember how Joshua uh, was told by God, look, the rest of these seven and a half tribes, they need to they need to take their territory, right? Joshua said to them in Joshua chapter 18 that he would cast lots before the Lord for them in order to determine the will of God for their territorial inheritance, which he did, of course. Well, what did it mean for Joshua to cast Goral? It meant he was seeking the will of God. That's all it meant. David says in a beautiful passage in Psalm 16, which is a wonderful messianic psalm, he says in verse 5, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance, my cup. You maintain my lot, my goral. You maintain my goral. What does he mean? He means all my circumstances, all circumstances of my life are controlled by God. There is not one circumstance in my life as I am pursued by Saul, hunted by Saul to the death that is not in the hands of God. Likewise, every circumstance you go through in your life is in the hands of God. Not in your hands, but in the hands of God. And what we must do is seek the will and the mind of God in all of our situations. It's interesting the word purim, the use of the word purim is significant here because it has a double meaning. And what is the double meaning? This is what it is. That the lot or the destiny of God's people would not be determined by Haman's casting of lots, the pur, before his gods. But that the destiny of God's people is only and always determined by God. Your life is not determined by what the devil decides, or what the devil has planned. Your lot, your garal, is only determined by God. By God. 
This is the providence of God. Only Yahweh gets to determine the casting of the lot or to determine the destiny of His people or to determine in the day of grace the destiny of the elect of God who are His people, His new covenant people. You'll notice not only the casting of lot to determine the mind of pagan gods or idols or whatever it is, but notice in verse 22 in chapter 9, it involves also this time the sending of gifts at the end of verse 22 of food to one another and of gifts to the poor. This is the Hebrew word manot, M-A-N-O-T, the Hebrew word manot. If you go back to Psalm 16 and verse 5, David says, O Lord, you are my portion, singular, mana." which is connected to manot, the sending of gifts. So the same word is used by David, you are my portion, as is used in Esther for the sending of gifts, of gifts of food or whatever it is to others. So both my portion, my mana, and my lot, my goral, refer to the same destiny when David thinks about it for himself. When you... When you strip that all down, what David is essentially saying is that you, God, are my lot. You are my destiny. You are my portion. There is nothing else that I need concern myself with except God, God's presence in my life, God's purpose for my life. And this is what I think the book of Esther is really all about. That God has a purpose for His people. Yes, in, in the book of Esther, it's couched in, in Old Testament terms of the, the deliverance of the nation of Israel in exile, in captivity, who have voluntarily stayed or remained in captivity, who have not gone back to Jerusalem. These are exiles who have found comfort, life, marriage, whatever it is, existence in Persia, and they have remained. And God has never forgotten the exiles. And so He provides for them. He is their destiny. He is their lot. He is their portion. And so too we see the fulfillment of this in much greater glorious detail. That Jesus is my portion. And Jesus is my lot. Whom have I on earth besides you? My heart and my flesh may fail. But you, Lord, you are my portion forever. See? So in the secondary meaning in chapter 9 of portions of food or gifts of food, all designed to celebrate their destiny or their deliverance by the hand of a sovereign God, who has to be sovereign because of how it all occurred, right? You know what's interesting about the Feast of Purim? It is not required by the law of God in the Old Testament. You know where do you read that this Feast of Purim must be celebrated in the law? It's not in the law. Let me remind you of Israel's feasts because they are very important for us. Because in fact they are a type and a picture and a shadow and a copy of Jesus. And so Israel's feasts from Exodus chapter 12, Leviticus chapter 23, Deuteronomy 16, Numbers 29. Here they are. Number one, there is Passover, right? Big. Passover is huge. It's redemption. Forgiveness. Salvation, right? 14th of Nisan. Our month of March or April. Right on the heels, because that's on the 14th day, Passover. <clears throat> on the 15th day to the 21st day of the month of Nisan is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
huge, big in Israel. Thirdly, the first Feast of Firstfruits, 16th of Nisan, or the 6th of Sivan, which is in going into the month of May or June. On the heels of the first fruits is the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, 50 days later. You have your first fruits, your harvest, and then the Feast of Pentecost later. Then, number five, the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, in September, October, the first of the month. Tenth of the month, you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? And on the 15th to the 21st of Tishri, same month, September, whenever it is, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle. So, the, the month September is huge in Israel in the Old Testament in its feasts. Then we read in John chapter 10 of another feast, Hanukkah, which is the Feast of Lights, which is not recorded in the Old Testament, but seems to be in practice in the New Testament, which takes place sometime in November, our November, December. And then... We have this feast, the Feast of Purim. You should do a study on the feasts of Israel, Book of Leviticus, Book of Exodus, very, very important. Every Jewish man, male, was required by God to attend three feasts in Jerusalem. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, whenever those feasts came up, every male was supposed to head to Jerusalem, obligated by God to come and worship. You notice that the Feast of Purim obligates every Jew, all the Jews throughout Persia, to be celebrated on two consecutive days, the 14th and the 15th day of Adar. It certainly began the celebration as a spontaneous response to the deliverance by God in Persia, or to put it another way, that they could look upon their deliverance as the enacting of the faithfulness of God in their life. God delivered them. God saved them. It was miraculous. We weren't expecting it, but we, we had instructions to defend ourselves. We did that. God delivered us. Nowhere do you read of any loss of life on the, the part of the Jews. It has to be this way. Celebration of a covenant relationship. Because that's what we do at every Lord's Supper. We celebrate. We remind ourselves of our new covenant relationship to Jesus which is cemented by his death on the cross, right? The bread and the wine. Not just a rote, mechanical observation, but a joyous experience of the fact that when I think of Jesus who died for me, I have life from him, the forgiveness of my sins, and as I eat and I drink, I'm nourished and refreshed in my faith. It's a spiritual exercise, not just a mere physical attendance. It's much deeper than that, right? Purim is celebrated by the Jews everywhere today in an unbroken sequence from Esther's time. What's interesting about Purim is that the Jews who were imprisoned in Nazi Germany, they found comfort in the book of Esther because they believed the book of Esther revealed that God delivers his people, therefore God will deliver us. Many Jews today, of course, continue to struggle, I think, to come to terms with their history of suffering with their history of pain and persecution. And certainly when you think of like the concentration camps like Auschwitz or something like that, there's a theological tension that is found there. Everybody who goes there says this. It goes something like this. If God is omnipotent, then He could have prevented the Holocaust. If He was unable to stop it, then God is impotent and useless. 
And if he could have stopped it and chose not to, then surely God is a monster. That's the Jewish interpretation of the experience out of Auschwitz. You cannot comprehend the horrors of a concentration camp. None, none of us can. They must have been horrific. But that surely, that kind of statement is ignorance of God and ignorance of the Bible. Because God is not useless and God is not impotent, but God is compassionate and merciful and always works for His own glory, the ends that are achieved by His purposes and by His covenantal dealings. Apparently in Auschwitz, a group of Jews put God on trial found him inexcusably guilty and worthy of death, and then turned around and went to evening prayer. How do you find God guilty and then go back to prayer? Prayer to whom? Prayer to God, right? And Jews today forget, forget, that they did put God really on trial. And they killed him. And then they said, His blood be on us and our children. They said that. They continue to forget and they continue to ignore the fact that the Son of God suffered the greatest atrocity that was ever committed. And they still continue to forget, as every unbeliever forgets, that the, the sin that resides within them is unimaginable evil. Not just an inclination to make a mistake, but is something really that has killed you and put you to death, and that you now, as, an, as a person, are in a state of spiritual death. No life. That was us before Jesus. Spiritual death. No living. No life. No light. Just darkness. The unbeliever fails to recognize that that's his position. It's Jesus that took that upon himself. I ask myself the question, did Jesus succeed? Yes, he succeeded. How do I know he succeeded? He rose from the dead. Because what does rising from the dead mean? He killed sin and he killed death and he put it to death. As John Owen says that in the death of Jesus you have the death of death. That's it. We do. Physical death is bereft of its physical power. I thought about that. It was very cold the day of my mother's burial, standing on the hillside in in Belfast, it was freezing actually, let me be frank, it was freezing, standing there with our coats, and there's a hole in the ground, and there's this little coffin that is put in the hole in the ground, and then the man threw some dust on the ground into the, into the hole. I thought how final, this is the consequence of sin, death, right? It's, it is the last enemy. We have our celebrations of life to mitigate our pain, but a celebration of life never mitigates the pain of death, ever. Death is death. It is ugly, it is brutal, and it has killed all of us until Jesus stopped it and saved us and gave us life. But death, we are reminded every time a body is buried of the enemy, has struck the consequence the wages of sin. Is it not a glorious thing to stand at a funeral, at a graveside, and know that what is laid in the ground shall experience glorious resurrection, the power of Christ, when He comes?
gathering all together, all of his people, wherever they are, bringing them back together in a twinkling of an eye, in an instant, before you can imagine it, done. His people, body and soul, together with the Lord for eternity. But for the unbeliever raised to judgment, raised to wrath, that what they experienced in life, the spiritual death, continues after death as spiritual death into eternity. How thankful we should be that Jesus delivered us. It's the gospel. You see, death has been deprived of its bite for us. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, we have this incredible victory over our sin, over our death. You see, God's promises to you and to me are not in Purim, they are in a person. Jesus, right? That's who they are in. So all the Old Testament feasts of covenantal feasts, they're done away with by Jesus. They're fulfilled in Jesus. Every single one of them fulfilled by Christ. Purim, which exists among the Jews of today, exists because of its historical significance for them. God intervened. God delivered His people. But at the same time, surely... Surely, if you read the Scriptures, you would know that they point to the significance of Christ. He delivers me. He intervened on my behalf, on your behalf, as my deliverer, as your deliverer. Yes, Purim is celebrated. Its significance is of historical value for Israel only. It is their proof, according to them, that God will deliver them. Whenever it is necessary. Now, you know, when they celebrate Purim, they sing songs. Because it is a celebration, a day of feasting and gladness right here. Here are some words from the song. He defeated the designs of the heathen nations and set to naught their cunning plots. When there arose against us wicked Haman, the arrogant branch of Amalek's stock. He sought to trap and was trapped instead. He planned destruction but was himself destroyed. Cursed be Haman who sought to destroy me. Blessed be Mordecai the Jew. Cursed be Zeresh the wife of my foe. Blessed be Esther who was a shield to me. That's the kind of things they remember. They sing songs about. What do we sing about? King Jesus, risen from the dead, right? Not a historical figure only, but a living, real Son of God. Right now, for me, for you, in the presence of God Himself. So you can celebrate Purim if you are a modern day Jew, or if you would like to celebrate it, you can celebrate it. You do it by sending gifts of food, as we see here, to family, to friends. Did you know that when Purim is celebrated in the synagogues of the Jews, the book of Esther is read in its entirety? Every time the name Mordecai is mentioned, they cheer. And every time Haman is mentioned, they hiss and they boo. Jews regard Purim as a sign that they will never be destroyed as a people. Do you know we have holidays in our world today that celebrate warfare? And strife, there is Bastille Day, right, from France, the French Revolution, July 14th, or Boston Day Massacre, March 5, or Cinco de Mayo, May 5, in Mexico, or the Revolution Day in Russia, November the 7th. 
Purim, of course, is not like a celebration like that. It is a spontaneous celebration of joy at being delivered, of having life. Because what happened on that day when Haman's edict was to be enacted was that there was a reversal, a change. The day of death and destruction, as they look back on it now, is long gone. It's dead. It's over. We won. It's a joyous rest. Evil has passed. So Purim is the, the joy that has totally eclipsed their memory of Haman and what he did. But may I suggest to you that Purim is totally eclipsed, is it not for us, by Jesus, by our Lord, by His death, by His resurrection, because on the day of His death, He brought about a victory unlike any victory there has ever been. He defeated Satan himself. He defeated death and he defeated sin. You see, the disciples' sorrow at the death of Jesus becomes the disciples' joy at the resurrection of Jesus, right? And isn't that our joy? So yes, Purim may speak to the destiny of an earthly people, but Calvary speaks to the destiny of God's people. We have a heavenly rest. Not an earthly day of celebration, but a heavenly rest. A eternal rest. Our destiny is that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Because Jesus shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Because He shall reign in His glory. And so on. That's real joy. That's the dwelling place of God. Revelation 21 is now with man we shall be His people and God Himself will be our God. That's the gospel. That's the joy of the gospel. That's the joy of the cross. God Himself will be our God. The gospel is truly words of peace and truth, isn't it? Because the Bible teaches us that Jesus Himself is our peace. Ephesians 2.14 And that Jesus Himself is the truth. John 14, verse 6 This is our Lord. So here is a book. This little book, obscure book, which perhaps is never read much or preached on much, this little book of Esther, in this book we have seen that God is absolutely sovereign, that His providence is everywhere present. But here also we have discovered that God is a God of promises, that God offers to His people His protection, that God offers to His people provision for their day of need, and God offers to His people His power on their behalf. And he has done it all in writing, in a word that is revelation, that is authoritative, that is given to you and me under divine inspiration. Every time you read your Bible, you are reading the words of truth and the words of peace from God. From God himself. Gospel truth. Gospel peace. Instead of Purim, we feast on a person, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book of Esther. A wonderful little book, so powerful, rich with truth about who you are and what you do for us. We thank you for the historical account of Esther, the things that we've read, that all of human history, you record for us as we see here, 
We see the interaction of your people in a world that is dark and pagan, just like we find ourselves tonight in a world that's dark and pagan, even in a country that's dark and pagan. Send the light, we pray. We are the light. Jesus shines in us. Let us shine in our small corner that others may see the light and believe. Or send us forth as your witnesses, as your testifiers to the resurrection of Christ, to the victory of Jesus. Because he shall come again, because he reigns at the right hand of God. He shall come from heaven with great glory to take us to himself. What a day of rejoicing that shall be. So thank you for your word and thank you for this book of Esther that we've studied together. May its lessons be impressed upon us. Now we pray, Father, thank you for today. Send us again into the world, change us by your spirit, and use us for your glory. And to God alone be all the praise, all the dominion, all the power, all the majesty, all the glory. And also to the Lamb who sits on the throne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>